Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Equinor's answer is one kilometre below the seabed. We're planning to capture CO2 emissions and safely store them under the sea. Visit equinor.co.uk. The UK, said Dr Jenny Harries, as she considered the pandemic raging through the country in April 2020, has been an international exemplar in preparedness. And had it not been for the thousand or so people dying from Covid each day at that time, it might have been almost amusing to hear. Dr Harries was, after all, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer for England, part of an expert team advising the government who believed mass testing was not an appropriate response to a viral pandemic, that face masks wouldn't help at all, and that ultimately they had little choice but to let the virus run riot. Prepared, it's safe to say, we were not. April 2020 feels like a long time ago now, of course, not least for Dr Harry's, who in 2021 was magically promoted to an even bigger job, running the newly formed UK Health Security Agency. Still, this year has undoubtedly gone a whole lot better for the UK government than the last one. And the latest wave of the virus sweeping across Europe shows how, as they always warned us, international comparisons remain difficult to make. But with almost 150,000 Britons now dead after catching COVID-19, an international exemplar in preparedness is not a phrase you tend to hear kicking round Whitehall anymore. Now, we've all learned a lot since the pandemic started, and it's easy to be wise after the event. You'd certainly hope that after the horrors of the past two years, the UK and indeed the world do at least stand better prepared for pandemics than they did in 2019. That might feel like a pretty small consolation prize, given the scale of what we've just been through. Plus, that's all way off in the future, isn't it? Like how many times have you heard it said that COVID-19 is a a once-in-a-century event? So presumably the one thing we can finally do, after all this is behind us, is to stop worrying about pandemics for a while. Right? There is no one in the scientific or even the political establishment who thinks that it's going to be another hundred years before we have another pandemic. Certainly people ought to be thinking about the next pandemic. Because I think since year 2000, you know, we already had to deal with SARS, MERS, you know, H1N1. COVID is actually the seventh global infectious disease crisis of the 21st century. Starting with SARS, avian influenza, swine flu in 2009, which became a pandemic, MERS, Ebola, Zika, and now COVID. So these events are happening continually at an increasing cadence. There's been a big change since the hundred year gap between COVID and Spanish flu, which is globalization. And so you have a pathogen, it is able to travel around the world with far greater ease than ever before. It's happening more and more, particularly with climate change, that extreme temperatures and that's going to introduce uncertainty. And so we have to be prepared. If we don't prepare societies to deal with infectious disease crises as a routine part of life in the 21st century, we'll be caught unawares and unprepared again. That infectious disease crises are occurring effectively every two to three to four years. It is absolutely essential that we assume we could have another pandemic within the next decade. Within the next decade? Eek. Yes, I'm sorry to break this to you, but every single expert that I spoke to for this podcast agreed that the threat from deadly pandemics is present and here to stay. This, for example, is Nicole Stevenson, Director of Infectious Disease Modelling at Metabiota, a Silicon Valley firm which since the late 2000s has been trying to foresee the threat posed by global pandemics. When you think of once-in-a-century event, basically 
that is a common misperception that it happens every 100 years. Basically, what it's saying is there's an annual probability of 1% that an event like this will happen. We've actually estimated that the annual probability is closer to 25 to 3.5%. And this means, you know, if you're looking at a longer time horizon, that there's a 22 to 28% chance of an event like this happening in the next 10 years, and a 47 to 57% chance of an event like this happening again in the next 25 years. So much more common than I think most people expect. Let's just say that again, shall we? A 22 to 28% chance of an event like this happening in the next decade. A 47 to 57% chance of an event like this happening again in the next 25 years. So, a simple question this week. Are we ready? And if we're not, what have we learned from COVID-19 to make us a genuine international exemplar next time round? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're exploring the next pandemic and asking experts from around the world how to avoid another disaster. It's January the 2nd, 2020, and Boris Johnson has taken to Twitter. This is going to be a fantastic year for Britain, he tweeted alongside a beaming photograph of himself giving a double thumbs up. The 2020s were only two days old, but already Johnson and his galaxy brain government were making important headlines on the news at 10. We want weirdos and misfits, the slightly unusual new advert for recruits to number 10 Downing Street. Frankly, it says it will be hard to have a boyfriend or girlfriend. No kidding. Unnoticed by a distracted Downing Street, however or indeed by any of us here in the mainstream media. The World Health Organization had two days earlier received formal notification from China of a strange and unidentified viral pneumonia sweeping through the city of Wuhan. Chinese health authorities are still working to identify the virus behind a pneumonia outbreak in the central city of Wuhan. According to authorities... In Britain, naturally, no action was taken. We, after all, had New Year's hangovers to deal with. And the Prime Minister was on holiday. As January progressed, the BBC World Channel gave the situation in Wuhan brief mentions from time to time, each report as carefully reassuring as the last. China has said that an outbreak of an unknown viral pneumonia is not the respiratory uh, disease SARS that previously killed uh, hundreds of people. In central China, a man has died following an outbreak of an unknown pneumonia-like virus, which officials say comes from the same family as the deadly SARS virus. Chinese health officials insist the situation's in hand. It's largely under control. Most patients are showing lighter symptoms, and some of them have already been discharged. Nobody, in truth, paid much attention. The SAGE Committee of Scientists did not meet. In Westminster, we obsessed over the EU withdrawal bill, the Labour leadership contest, and whether Big Ben would bong for Brexit. On January the 20th, three full weeks after the outbreak was formally announced, the World Health Organization at last confirmed what was widely suspected, that human-to-human transmission of the virus was taking place. Now the story hit the UK headlines proper, albeit still with reassuring caveats. It's been confirmed that a new virus that has killed three people and has been spreading across China can be passed from person to person, not just from animals. The infection is a new type of coronavirus which originated in animals. Although person to person transmission has been confirmed, it does not thankfully spread easily. Signs of infection. Phew, thank goodness for that, eh? I mean, just imagine if it could spread easily. Anyway, two days later, on January 22nd, the SAGE advisory group held its first meeting to discuss the outbreak. And the following day, January 23rd, Health Secretary Matt Hancock, remember him? At last raised the issue in Parliament 
telling MPs the first measures had just been put in place to stop the virus arriving at our shores. Since yesterday, Public Health England officials have been carrying out enhanced monitoring of direct flights from Wuhan City, and all passengers on direct flights from China will receive information on what to do if they fall ill. The Chief Medical Officer has revised the risk to the UK population from very low to low and has concluded that while there is an increased likelihood that cases may arise in this country, we are well prepared and well equipped to deal with them. Got that? Low risk, well prepared, well equipped to deal with it. Excellent. Now, let's be fair. In those early, early stages of the pandemic, the authorities in Britain, as in the rest of the world, were badly hampered by a lack of understanding of the new virus and the speed at which it was spreading across China and beyond. Yet in a handful of countries elsewhere, the reaction in those crucial early weeks of January was remarkably different. I think Taiwan was prepared since the SARS epidemic in the year 2003. This is Dr Jason Wang, director of the Centre for Policy, Outcomes and Prevention at Stanford University and a former public health advisor in Taiwan. Since that epidemic, Taiwan has amended its Communicable Disease Control Act that allows the government special powers during a crisis. The government was able to activate the command center, which has been training for the last 17 years with drills. And so in the beginning of the pandemic, everybody has been trained to do border control at the onset, first with the flights from Wuhan, screening for any symptoms of fever, respiratory illness, and then uh, quickly set up uh, quarantine stations. And this has been uh, very effective because, as you know, if you could stop the virus from coming in, then you could stop the domestic spread. In Taiwan, the government started screening flights from Wuhan on New Year's Eve itself, the very day China first notified the WHO about the new virus while Boris Johnson was still slurping cocktails in the Caribbean sun. This screening was swiftly extended to arrivals from the rest of China, then to all passengers from countries deemed high risk, and by early February, to all arrivals into Taiwan from anywhere. And guess what? It worked. By mid-January, Taiwan was already discovering and quarantining its first coronavirus cases. This time, Taiwan announces its first case of the deadly coronavirus. This individual case is a Taiwanese business person who flew back to Taiwan last night. The case was quarantined from the airport. We have counted 46 people on the flight who had close interaction with the subject. All the members are under self-confinement and are being closely monitored. There is very little probability of community infection, but we are still on high alert. Now, the difference between those reassurances and the ones we heard from Matt Hancock earlier is that, well, the Taiwanese ones were actually true. And that's probably because the Taiwanese quarantine system, road-tested during the SARS outbreak and honed over the subsequent 17 years, sounds a little more robust than the one Hancock implemented here in the UK. So there was no screening at Wuhan and there was no screening as I've landed. Uh, we were given a leaflet in English saying if you've experienced symptoms, call NHS Direct. That was from Public Health England. What had happened to a lot of countries this time is that the borders remained open for a very long period of time. And so by the time people realised that the virus is in the community, it's very, very difficult to do contact tracing because you don't know where you got the virus from. And at that time, it's almost impossible to be tracking that many number of people. This is a critical point. One of the reasons Test and Trace was initially abandoned in the UK was because the system became overwhelmed by the scale of community transmission. Even once Hancock had massively ramped up the system to 100,000 tests a day, we never properly got a grip on the virus in the way they did in countries like Taiwan where borders were screened carefully and every case and their contacts hunted down. So the first step that they did was border control. And they are able to do that 
because the Communicable Disease Control Act has been amended to give government special powers for quarantine. These were mighty powers indeed. Citizens in Taiwan ordered to quarantine had their mobile phones tracked. They received a text warning if they travelled too far from their accommodation and would be fined if they did not return immediately. Regular spot checks were carried out too. They also received generous daily support payments into their bank accounts, plus free access to fitness videos and films to watch at home. A carrot and a digital stick. And the digital intrusion did not end there. A lot of the things that the Western world are dealing with are, you know, these regulatory issues, these legal issues. Can government do this? Can government do that? And the other thing is how to relay critical information to the people who need them to take care of patients. So Taiwan has a national health insurance program. So it was able to use the national health insurance database and quickly merge them with batches of data from the immigration and customs service so that they know who's coming in from abroad. And so if they then go see a doctor, for example, that gets triggered in the database. And so the doctors and nurses will know, oh, this person just came from abroad, like within the last 14 days. So they will do a special screening, make sure if they have any respiratory symptoms, that they are tested for COVID. And that way, they're able to identify people with early symptoms very quickly. And so the use of big data and the analytics associated with big data is critical. And so that, that again, is because they had a you know, amended the laws to give special power to the government during the pandemic. There was one other big cultural hangover from the SARS epidemic which put countries like Taiwan and others in Eastern Asia at a big advantage last year. Their citizens were already well used to wearing masks. So in the beginning of the pandemic, there were shortages of masks everywhere and Taiwan was able to ramp up the production of masks from about, you know, 2.2 million a day to 10 times that within a matter of weeks. Once you are able to provide the critical PPEs, both for healthcare workers and also for the citizenry, then people feel much more protected. And so both supply of PPEs and resource allocation, which is uh, distributed equally to the citizenry, I think is very important for pandemic control. The production and distribution of masks were essentially nationalised by the government, with factories ordered into mass production and masks handed out to citizens on a weekly basis. The effect of this three-pronged approach, border screening, tough quarantine and the mass production and mass wearing of masks, taken from the very start of the pandemic, was, quite frankly, extraordinary. Taiwan is a small but densely populated island of 24 million people. That's a bigger population than most countries in Europe and situated less than 100 miles off the coast of China. It should have been right in the firing line. And yet to this day, Taiwan has suffered fewer than 900 coronavirus deaths. The disease was almost entirely contained for the whole of the first year, allowing people to go about their business as normal unless they were required to quarantine. There was a brief semi-lockdown in the summer of 2021 after an outbreak of the Delta variant, but the virus is now back under control. And it's not just Taiwan. As you probably know, other East Asian countries like South Korea achieved equally spectacular results with a similar approach. Tough border measures, super strict quarantine, chasing down the virus wherever it popped up. They too have never needed a full lockdown. A lockdown is a failure. If you have to get to the point where you're locking down the country, you have failed to contain a virus. This is Jeremy Hunt, formerly the UK's longest-serving health secretary and now chair of the Commons Health Select Committee. I think your policy objective is to never get to the point where you have to have a lockdown, which is why in the first year of COVID, the responses from Korea and Taiwan were spectacularly successful because they didn't have to have any national lockdown because they closed their borders really quickly. They had very rigorous test and trace. They have very strict quarantine requirements for anyone who is infected. But by taking those tough measures early, 
they avoided the massive economic impact of a lockdown. They were less good than us when it came to embracing the vaccine. So, you know, if you're going to be balanced, you'd probably say that what Korea and Australia did in the first year was better, what we did in the second year was better. But that doesn't mean to say we can't learn from their initial response because it did save many more lives than we were able to save here. Does that mean then that for the next pandemic, uh, Britain's strategy should be exactly that? Close the borders as quickly as possible and test, test, test to try and keep the virus out? For a coronavirus-type pandemic where there is asymptomatic transmission, then yes, because the only way you can identify who's got it and who's spreading it is through a rigorous testing regime. And of course, being an island, it's actually easier for us to close our borders than it is for a country like France or Switzerland or Holland. Judging by pretty much every opinion poll I've ever seen, much tighter border controls at the start of a pandemic would be warmly welcomed by the British public. But would Britain be prepared to stomach the sort of cross-government data sharing and Big Brother-style quarantines they also used in Taiwan? It's not a conversation people have really had in this country. Not yet, at any rate. There seems to be an acceptance that the infringement of our civil liberties would be too much to bear. And who knows, maybe it would be. But don't forget, that's what people said about lockdowns too, until the moment came. There's a cultural difference between the East and the West with respect to the pandemic. Dr Jason Wang. I think the East in general are more risk-averse. And so people tend to wear masks and be more compliant with wearing masks because they're used to wearing masks, even during flu seasons. And uh, culturally, uh, the Western societies are more risk-taking and more pioneering. And so, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages of being pioneering. And so I think the East has a lot to learn from the West and the West has a lot to learn from the East, both in pandemic and in regular times. I've lived most of my life in the United States. And when I go to Asia, I've learned quite a bit of public health practices from Asia. And then when I come back, I bring them back. And in the same same time, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley and I bring some ideas about innovations and entrepreneurship back to Asia when I visit. And so definitely there are advantages of each of the societies and we should learn from each other. Part of the problem during the COVID pandemic, Jeremy Hunt says, was that nobody in Whitehall embraced this attitude. I think there was a Western group think that basically thought, you know, Britain, America, Europe, we understand pandemics, we've got the best science and uh, we know what we're doing. And when it came to Asia, I think that we looked at China and we thought we can't really learn much from China because it's not a democracy. They operate in different ways. They can do things we can't do. We didn't look at the East Asian democracies, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, and see what they were doing and see what we could learn. So there was a blind spot there, certainly. This problem of Whitehall groupthink has been highlighted again and again by those assessing the UK's initial response to the pandemic. Boris Johnson's former chief aide, Dominic Cummings, his vaccine czar, Kate Bingham, and Jeremy Hunt's own select committee report all stressed that a major cultural shift is needed to avoid similar mistakes next time round. You need someone who's got the guts to listen to a whole bunch of experts and say you're all wrong. And actually, even Dominic Cummings was very honest to the select committee when he said it's incredibly difficult to challenge a deeply held scientific consensus, which in the early stages of our pandemic was that we should not lock down until the very last minute. We know that was wrong. But if you're a PPE graduate like me and you've got all these brilliant scientists telling you, no, 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 you must not do this because there'll be a second wave that'll come back and bite us and it'll be even worse. It's really hard. So you need to create an environment where people feel secure in challenging preconceived ideas. And I'm not sure that we had that in this pandemic for all sorts of reasons. So if the next pandemic looks anything like the current one, there's clearly a huge amount to learn from the best-in-class response of the East Asian democracies, in the first part of the pandemic at least. But what if the next pandemic does not look much like Covid? Coming up in part two, 
we'll be asking about the different types of virus we might face in a future pandemic, whether vaccines are likely to be as effective next time round, and even whether we can prevent future outbreaks from happening at all. Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Our answer is one kilometre below the seabed. At Equinor, we're planning to use carbon capture and storage to help decarbonise the north of England. Carbon emissions from the Humber and Teesside regions will be safely stored one kilometre below the North Sea. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. When Whitehall was preparing for the current pandemic, it had one idea immovably fixed in its mind. That the disaster, when it came, would be flu. When I was Health Secretary, I was part of that groupthink that said, you know, the most likely pandemic we're going to have is a flu pandemic and we should put all our effort into preparing for that. Jeremy Hunt. And I didn't challenge that groupthink then. And I think that we need to think about how it is that we can make sure that challenge happens in the future. The flu plan had been carefully tested, complete with a now notorious three-day role play called Exercise Cygnus. I distinctly remember being in the Downing Street lobby briefing back in 2016 when we were told Jeremy Hunt was off wargaming a global pandemic. It seems so far-fetched. Most of us found the whole thing hilarious. The fascinating thing about Cygnus is that it was incredibly professional. Hundreds of people involved. Lots of very detailed recommendations made to ministers that were then implemented. And some of them were quite useful in our response to coronavirus. But there was not one recommendation about improving our test and trace capability. There was no thinking about why we're preparing for a flu pandemic. There was just an assumption, a kind of groupthink, that if we have a pandemic, the most likely one is a flu pandemic. And of course, the one we ended up with wasn't flu. Much of that, of course, we already knew. But it got me thinking, what if the next pandemic is flu? I mean... Isn't that still the most likely option? That indeed was uh, really the main thing we were watching the horizon for. And the basis for that, well, look at what past pandemics of, you know, respiratory diseases have been. It's been lots of flus. This is Julia Gogg, Professor of Mathematical Biology at the University of Cambridge and a global expert in pandemic modelling. You could say maybe coronavirus wasn't the biggest surprise given SARS happened, right? But just based on the past, influenza certainly was the one to watch beforehand. And so presumably, despite what we've just been through, to a degree that remains the case. There's every reasonable chance that we still will face an influenza pandemic at some point reasonably soon. Yeah, I don't think anything has changed for influenza at all. Not suddenly massively less likely because we've had something else. But of course, we're now going to be scanning for coronaviruses as well. How bad could a flu pandemic be? What's the sort of worst case scenario for a, an outbreak of flu? Um, the imagination of modellers here is completely horrible and maybe you don't really want to know. So the first thing is how many people get it, right? You can get a situation where if it's highly transmissible, you can talk about some fairly hefty R numbers. You can talk about influenzas that are not very controllable at all. So you can talk about a situation where with the flu pandemic, it's possible as a strain where basically everyone gets hit, or almost everyone gets hit in the first wave, really large numbers. And then you can start to say, OK, what does this mean in terms of how severe it is? You know, 1% fatality ratio would be awful, really awful. But that's within the range of plausible, 2% maybe. And then you start to compound that with, well, if all of this happens at once, the healthcare system will not cope with that. So it could be absolutely horrific. So it really gets into the scales of orders and orders of magnitude worse than what we've seen COVID in terms of what is possible, whether it's likely or not, that's hard to say, but it's not in the realms of cannot happen. Are the sort of measures that we've seen and learned to be effective during this pandemic, would they equate directly across to a very bad flu pandemic of the type you've described or should we see a very different policy response that's where the big questions are because our repertoire of ways of dealing with pandemics has completely completely changed in 2020 and 2021 
And the key thing is lockdowns, right? So to take interventions that really bring interactions in person in the population right down to low levels is something that wasn't in the repertoire of things we could have imagined doing maybe before this. Will that work against flu? Well, clearly, yes. Anything that breaks interaction between people will almost have proportional effect on R0. If, if we mix half as much, that brings R0 down by half, right? I think less clear is some of the interventions like testing and then isolating or contact tracing and isolating using apps. And all of those depend a little bit more on the biology of the virus. Like, do you have symptoms before you're infectious or after or If you've got a virus where uh, you are obviously ill before you're really infectious, then any strategies that control if you know you've been exposed are going to be super effective. With flu, it's usually the other way around. You can be infectious before it's obvious. So those sort of measures aren't going to be good there. And I say with flu, maybe a different flu strain will have uh, things a different way around. So the timescale of these things as well, how quickly if we start doing contact tracing Actually, is someone really infectious quite early in infection? So actually, you can't move fast enough to hunt it down that route. The effect of face masks isn't going to be the same between different viruses. It's going to depend on the mode of transmission, how much of it is via aerosol, how much of it is via droplet, how much of it is other things like just contact, right? If we touch surfaces and we touch our face, subtleties of mode of transmission will be a difference between COVID and any flu strain and between those and whatever other respiratory virus that we're not yet imagining now. So if a new virus does breach our borders and wide-scale community transmission is underway, our policy response can't just be imported wholesale from the COVID pandemic. To be effective, it must be tailored to meet the specific threat. I'm sure we will be much better at test and trace. Jeremy Hunt. Having learnt the hard way price you pay if you're not ready when you have a a virus that can be transmitted asymptomatically as COVID can. So I am quite confident that we will learn those lessons, but we mustn't kid ourselves that it's going to be the same type of virus next time round. And that's the real risk here, that next time round we over-prepare for a virus that's very similar to the one we've just had. There'll be other types of virus which require a different response, and that's why we need to Just be very open-minded about what could possibly be out there. The crucial factor in any new pandemic, Professor Gogg says, will always be how transmissible this new virus is. That thing we've all come to know and love as the R number, or as she calls it, R naught. This is the factor which will ultimately drive the scale of the social restrictions required. If you've got something which is not super transmissible, or maybe you have symptoms early, or it's a little bit more controllable then you don't need lockdowns. There are other interventions that are more minor that brings it to a halt. And then you've got the other extreme where it's just worse than COVID-19 so that even the lockdowns really wouldn't have turned over transmission, wouldn't bring things down. So those interventions are just not enough to stop massive, massive waves. So we've got to think outside of the range that we've just seen. Are there even more dramatic interventions we could make in that latter scenario you just uh, set out? Uh, I think so. I'm getting beyond my own imagination a little bit. But when we say lockdown, I think what that means in different countries is very different, isn't it? Even across Europe, it certainly is across the rest of the world, even more so. So maybe we need to talk about what strength of lockdown could be achieved, how that would be achieved and how to do that whilst mitigating the worst of the harms of what's happened. But gosh, yes, no, you can certainly have uh, much, much, much stronger interventions than we've seen. It's surely feasible, but it's going to be much more harmful. So how high would a virus's R number need to go for a 2020-style lockdown to be ineffective? So if you have an R0 which is much, much, much higher, say, than what we've been dealing with, then you can talk about a lockdown that reduces transmission by 90%. That would be an amazing lockdown. But that might not be enough to stop something which has got an R0 greater than 10. Well, it won't be. You'll still get an outbreak and a wave and you've got to find other ways to mitigate at that point. And do such viruses exist? I mean, is that an imaginary thing that you're talking about, an R number of that sort of scale? Sadly not. If you look at the estimates for R0 for Delta, we're getting towards that scale. An R0 of 9 or 10 is not out of the question for what we're looking at now. But this has arrived in the context 
of heavy vaccination, populations that have already been exposed to COVID. If this had been the thing that arrived on day one, we would have been in big, big trouble. Lockdowns wouldn't have been enough, right? And if you look at other viruses, I mean, like measles is, is the one that we always go back to. It's one that's been heavily studied over the years. You'd be looking at r naught certainly much higher than 10. You know, it's not a range of parameters that you can never get to. It raises some interesting questions. If you're dealing with a really controllable virus, a borderline controllable, uncontrollable, your strategies are all going to be different. In some sense, we need to prepare for all of these. We need to think in advance about all of these. OK. So, clearly, we're now into the realms of doomsday scenarios, killer virus stuff that only a couple of years ago would have sounded to most of us like science fiction. And there's no reason to assume the next pandemic would necessarily be worse than the one we're going through now. But nevertheless, in a post-COVID world, these are bleak scenarios which we really do need to consider. And someone doing exactly that is Professor Kevin Esfeldt, a biosecurity expert and evolutionary engineer at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He says the most important defence we would have in the face of a truly disastrous pandemic would be high-tech PPE. We need sufficient gear to keep ourselves from getting infected. Because if you can't make a vaccine, the best possible defence is ensuring that you don't get infected in the first place. And I'm not talking N95 masks here. We know how to make perfectly protective equipment. They already exist on the market called powered air purifying respirators. While you're wearing one, you're not gonna say you're totally immune to all viruses, but you're immune to all of the nasty things that would otherwise cause a major problem. So if we invested a bit in making those things comfortable, effective, and ideally stylish, so people are actually willing to wear them, And we had enough of them for every essential worker, right? Because what if the next pandemic is as lethal as Ebola? We need folks willing to go out there and make sure that food distribution continues, that the water keeps flowing and the lights stay on. We need to give them protective equipment that's good enough and believable enough that they're willing to go out there and risk their lives to keep everything running. Part of the problem with COVID is people didn't take it seriously because the fatality rate isn't so obviously high. But if it's like Ebola and there's an, you know, a 70% chance that you're going to die no matter what your age if you contract this thing, I think people would take that quite a bit more seriously. And the thing is, if we all wear protective equipment whenever we're outside, and it's proven that most of us don't need to go out and socialize for a while, if we actually do that, we can completely eradicate the virus from the country. But they can only do that if we have good enough protective equipment, and ideally that's already available. Because the risk is what if the next pandemic comes and it spreads really fast and it's super scary and people quite reasonably say, there is no way I'm leaving my house to hell with my job. Well, if enough people do that, who's gonna drive the food distribution trucks? Who's gonna harvest the crops? Who's going to ensure that the water pipes are still working, that the lights stay on. You know, we need those basic necessities. Who's going to keep order? Those are jobs that are essential to keep everyone alive. And so we need people to feel confident that they can go out there and stay safe. And that means we need equipment that can do that. We already basically know how to build it. It's just not very comfortable. And it's certainly not what you'd call stylish. Even in a doomsday style pandemic, the hope would be that the kinds of extreme lockdown and super-effective PPE envisaged by Professors Gog and Esfeldt would essentially be a stopgap measure until the vaccine makers come riding to our rescue a few months later, just as they did with COVID-19. The zillion-dollar question, of course, is whether they'll be able to repeat the trick. I think we were lucky that the first serious pandemic of the 21st century, the first one with this kind of impact, was a coronavirus. This is Richard Hatchett, head of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI. It's a global organisation founded in the aftermath of the Ebola epidemics in West Africa and tasked with vaccine development against emerging infectious diseases. With respect to COVID, 
the fact that we were able to develop vaccines so rapidly with such a high degree of success is not because we can do that for any threat, but specifically because scientists had been working on understanding how to develop vaccines against coronaviruses because of the recent experience of SARS and MERS. And they had essentially solved the vaccine development problems so that when COVID did emerge, we were able to move essentially directly into the clinical development of a COVID vaccine. All of that work had been done previously because of the focus on coronaviruses as a viral family that presented a threat. Coronaviruses are actually the only viral family of the 25 or 26 viral families that are known to cause human disease where that work had been done on rapid response platforms when COVID struck. Get that? Horrific as the past two years have been, in a very real sense, we got lucky. Not only could first-generation COVID be stopped by relatively straightforward lockdowns and had a relatively low death rate compared with something truly horrific like Ebola, but scientists had already spent years working on vaccines for very similar types of virus. We wouldn't have worked out all of these problems that we had solved before COVID emerged if a new threatening paramyxovirus emerged, for example. So I do think we now need to look at COVID essentially as proof of principle for a new concept in how to prepare for viral threats. And we need to learn that lesson and now expand that to the entire set of viral threats that we can anticipate. We might still be surprised. I mean, there might be a a new virus that emerges that is not in one of those families, but our experience to date with emerging threats like Ebola is that the threats that emerge tend to be related to threats that we know about. With the backing of the G7, CEPI is currently trying to raise $3.5 billion to begin this research work into other types of dangerous virus. It also wants to hone vaccine production and testing techniques so that future vaccines can be created, tested and delivered in just 100 days. We're taking a very deep look into all of the innovations that different vaccine manufacturers and different regulators used to accelerate vaccine development in 2020. Different companies took different approaches to developing candidate vaccines and different regulators globally took different approaches in terms of how they assessed the vaccine candidates and issued emergency use authorizations. So the first thing that we need to do is to optimize across all of the innovations that we've already accepted, essentially. And then we need to look very closely at each separate stage of vaccine development. You know, what can we do to be prepared to reduce the time requirement without compromising on safety or efficacy? If we had been able to achieve a 100-day timeline in COVID, Plausibly, we could have delivered a vaccine as early as late April. At that point, the disease had spread globally, but the number of mortalities was much, much lower, and the number of cases globally was much, much lower than it was in December when we actually were able to deliver vaccines. And by beginning to distribute vaccines much earlier, you could have saved, importantly, in the first place, millions of lives. And you would have reduced or mitigated the economic damage that the pandemic had caused, probably in the order of trillions of dollars. Hatchet is also clear the world needs to do much better in ensuring vaccines are available for people in developing countries as quickly as for the richest nations. We're going to have to think about how to prevent rich countries essentially from cornering the market on vaccines in the future. I think one very important element of reducing that gap will be by having more globally distributed vaccine manufacturing. In this pandemic, vaccine manufacturing has been concentrated essentially in the US, the UK and Europe, India and China. And all of those are regions that have huge populations that will need to be served before they can share vaccines globally. 
if we have more distributed manufacturing in the future, manufacturing in, in South America and Africa and Southeast Asia and elsewhere, we could much more rapidly both develop the vaccines, as I've described, so that manufacturing begins globally in a much broader way than it did during the COVID pandemic. He says the real goal for the next pandemic should be to combine this super rapid vaccine deployment with faster, tougher and highly targeted measures to try to contain the viral outbreak wherever it's first found. If that 100-day goal were achieved but also coupled with better surveillance, early detection and warning that a new threat was emerging, you could plausibly imagine delivering a vaccine earlier in an environment where disease transmission has been suppressed to such an extent that that vaccine could actually allow a potential pandemic to be prevented from occurring altogether. And obviously, in that circumstance, the savings in terms of lives and treasure would have been immense. It's worth remembering, however, as we consider the next pandemic, that researching different types of dangerous virus does carry its own risks. There are, of course, still plenty of people who think the virus which causes COVID-19 may have escaped from a lab in Wuhan. And accidents are not the only danger. We've done a lot of work in fighting COVID that made it easy for all of scientists like my group to make the virus. Professor Kevin Esfeldt of MIT. And what that means is that lots of scientists, even if they don't normally work with viruses, now have the technical skills to order synthetic DNA and turn it into just about any virus for which we have the genome sequence. Which means if we learned which virus could cause the next pandemic, then tens of thousands of people in the next few years, we'll have the ability to single-handedly make it. Now, to be clear, right now, we don't really have a good idea which viruses will like cause the next pandemic. But lots of scientists want to find them all because they have this idea that if we, if we know the enemy, then we can spot it in the wild and we can prevent it from spilling over and be safe from natural pandemics. The problem is a lot of these folks want to make a ranked order list of all the viruses they think are the most threatening. And the problem is entirely too many people can just make almost any virus on that list. And when you consider that the current pandemic has killed more people than any nuclear weapon, that's a security risk. Within a couple of kilometers of my lab, there's probably a thousand people who could single-handedly set off any given pandemic if they knew what the virus looked like. There's a lot of good-hearted scientists who really want to stop the next natural pandemic and have just never thought of the security risks, have never thought of a pandemic virus as equivalent to a nuclear weapon. For Professor Esfeldt, the focus has to remain on stopping pandemics emerging in the first place. After all, he says, for the next pandemic, there might be no vaccine at all. What if the next one is more like HIV? 40 years on, we still don't have a good HIV vaccine. What if the next pandemic is like that? And we've thrown everything into the pot for making rapid vaccines and we don't get one. Then we're in trouble. What we need in order to really reliably prevent the next pandemic is number one, the ability to detect it as early as possible. And since we don't know what kind of virus might cause it, that means we need to sequence everything out there and just look for DNA or RNA, which everything living is made of, that is growing rapidly. Because no matter what it is, if we do that, we will see it. When you say go out there and sequence everything, just explain for me what you mean by that a little bit, please. Yeah, so one of the amazing biotechnologies that we've developed is the ability to read off the sequence of life. That is DNA, or in the case of the SARS-CoV-2, RNA. And everything alive, of course, has this kind of genomic instruction code. Now, the key here is that we can just sequence all of the DNA and RNA in any given sample. So that means we can take a swab from your nose and sequence everything there, and we'll find not only 
you know, whatever viruses you might be infected with, but all the bacteria that normally live there. If you're infected with some novel virus that we've never seen before, sequencing will find it. And so if we sequence enough just in hospitals, doctors' offices, and so forth, we'll be able to pick up a virus, even if it's like HIV and doesn't immediately cause you to get sick, we'll find it. The other way to do it is a way that we're using to find COVID today. And that is we sequence wastewater. Because, you know, you go to the John, do your business. Actually, all the viruses that are in you come out. And so that's another early warning system. The combination of those two, especially if we sequence in airports, will let us find the next pandemic early, early enough to take action to stop it. So we're searching all the time for an unknown virus that may not yet exist in human circulation, but we've got to find it as soon as it does. That's right, because the only thing we know for certain about the next pandemic class threat is that it's going to grow and grow fast. So sequencing DNA is the key to reliably finding the next pandemic. So as Britain and the world start to consider their approach to the next pandemic. There are so many lessons to learn from the past two years. The strict border and quarantine measures adopted with success in Eastern Asia surely deserve much greater attention next time round, particularly in the early days of a pandemic. Lockdowns of whatever severity are not inevitable if the virus can be monitored and hunted down, but would likely remain the ultimate tool to stop it in its tracks. Serious investment in different grades of PPE sounds smart, including high-tech kit that key workers could confidently use, even in a worst-case scenario. And whatever it takes to further speed up the development and distribution of vaccines will surely be a worthwhile investment. But finally, the best way to tackle the next pandemic is to try to tackle it at source. Monitoring the entire planet for dangerous new pathogens is a mighty undertaking, but given all that we've been through the past two years, is surely the best defence of all. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. These episodes are not really time-sensitive, so why not have a look through our back catalogue too, for others that you might enjoy. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.